Welcome to The Legal Lowdown, where we take a careful look at the legal issues affecting Americans every day. Today, joining me is Parrish Lentz, an experienced trust and estate attorney who practices in Massachusetts and Rhode Island. Parrish has joined us before to talk about trust and estate planning, both for yourself and for others. But today, he's here to talk to us about the legal rights surrounding when your child turns 18 and becomes a young adult, but is not entirely out of your house yet. (laughs) Parrish, welcome to the podcast. It's always a pleasure. So I'd like to do something different this time, and I'd like to ask you to start by telling a story that you think reflects a situation that a young adult and their parents could possibly find themselves in. Uh, Thanks, Diana. I think a tough situation that I dealt with before was when a young adult had a health crisis, and uh, they were in the National Guard, and they were admitted to the VA hospital in Providence, and had been there for a few days in the VA, said, this this person, this patient really needs to go to a specific rehabilitation facility in Boston, Spalding. And so the father, who did not have power of attorney, called Spalding and said, the VA has indicated, this is a place for my son. This is where he should get the treatment. And they said, okay, who are you? I'm his father. And they said, no, legally, who are you? You his healthcare power of attorney or his you know, durable power of attorney or guardian. No, none of that. So, well, then we cannot admit him. So he contacted us and I got in touch with Spalding and they said, he has to be appointed the guardian before we'll admit him, even though the clock was ticking, he had a brain injury. So we went through, got a guardianship, got a date certain for the probate court. And once we had that date certain, Spalding did agree to admit him. But It was a very stressful event for this father uh, who actually, he told me that he had lost a child previously. And he said, um, you know, there's no way I'm going to do everything I can to take care of this boy who was not a boy, of course. So that is sort of the worst case scenario. If you don't have these powers of attorney, healthcare power of attorney or a HIPAA authorization, and they're pretty straightforward documents, which we'll talk about, but... That story honestly stays with me because uh, the father was so upset and it was such a critical time and it had that urgency to it that he really needed to get this. You know, this wasn't some therapy he could have months later or, you know, he needed it right away. So that story really stays with me and is sort of the, the worst case scenario for when you don't have this type of planning set up. Yeah, it really highlights, even as a parent, what you don't expect, which is your legal rights as a child's parent change. And it's not something that gets talked about very often or that you hear about mainstream. Um, I'm sure it's very familiar for you, but for others, it would be surprising that your child's always your child, but legally it changes at a certain time. Dramatically. Yes. (laughs) So let's get started and take a deep dive into what exactly does change and what you need to be able to still support your children legally, I guess is the best way to put it, while they're now an adult and heading off into the world. Right. So one of the things that I have had very little success with in my practice, honestly, is trying to get parents to do this planning, you know, for their children who are turning 18. 
I've had some success with when new clients come in and we do, you know, wills and trusts and powers of attorney for them. And I say, you have two adult children as a value added. How about I prepare powers of attorney for finances and for healthcare and a HIPAA authorization for them? Oh, okay, great. We'll do that. Um, but I think it's hard when, when people are turning 18, there's usually a lot going on. Mm-hmm. They're graduating from high school. They're planning for the next step, which for a lot of folks is college, maybe the military, maybe a job, maybe they're moving to some uh, place that they think is a lot more exciting than where their parents live. <laughs> um, so that's really the focus. And people are young and everything's worked out so far. You've been the parent, and under the laws of most states, a minor who's any individual who's under the age of 18, um, their parent is their natural guardian, and they can take care of everything for them, the health care, the finances, and are responsible for them. When they turn 18, they're an adult, and everything changes. So all of these protections that we adults expect, they get. Mm-hmm. So, um, for example, in the healthcare uh, under HIPAA, the you know you have protected health information. You don't want your health information shared with anyone. Sure. So <clears throat> that's one area. And then you know the classic thing is you turn eighteen. Or I, I had a son who just graduated, and there's a big rush for graduation to go buy cigars. <laughs> I don't know where that came from, but we're stuck with it. So you know they're eighteen. They can buy cigars. They can go to a casino lottery tickets, all those fabulous things that adults do. They've been waiting for. <laughs> and they, <laughs> they have the right to. But everything changes. So um, that's really what, what, you need to plan, what we need to plan for, everybody needs to plan for. And like we talked about in our prior podcast, just estate planning in general, every adult, whether you're 18 or 118, should have these powers of attorney in place because otherwise you end up like this, you know, very nice dad with the the son who's stuck in the VA. Yeah. And, you know, doing these pretty simple documents can can alleviate that whole disaster. Okay. So going to it, it sounds like the healthcare piece is maybe the most important. I don't know if you'd agree with that. I would. Okay. And ha- so how would you recommend somebody go about that? I know there's a HIPAA release, there's a healthcare proxy. How are those the same? How are they different? Do you need both? Can you give us some information or a recommendation? So um, the HIPAA, the law, the Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act codifies protecting our health information, every adult's health information, well, everyone's uh, health information. Uh, if you're a minor, your parent can access that information. But like we said, when you turn 18, that's your information. So in order for you to, you can release that HIPAA right, and there's a HIPAA release that we prepare for people, and then you can add your parents, your children, your whomever you want to have. Some people, they don't have a family member who's their healthcare power of attorney, or they have a non-family member that they want to participate in the healthcare process. So a healthcare power of attorney, which in Rhode Island is called a healthcare, a healthcare power of attorney in Massachusetts, it's a healthcare proxy. Okay. Uh, but they're the same 
basically the same document. And what they do is designate who the decision maker will be upon the event that the principal, the person who executes the power of attorney, is not capable of making informed medical decisions. So it's not effective when you sign it. Although some people feel empowered, when <laughs> it is executed, it really doesn't take effect just yet. Okay. There, there has to be an event, okay. and the doctor has to determine, hey, this is an event. The HIP author authorization is different. It's effective when you sign it. So they're different. Once you once that event happens, if you know someone has a they're in a coma or you know maybe they have an overdose or something like that, and that healthcare power of attorney kicks in, then you know what, what we're talking about today, the parent would step in. One of the things about the healthcare power of attorney is that Rhode Island, Massachusetts, and most states only have one agent or proxy or healthcare attorney at a time. So that one person makes the decision. And that's to avoid conflicts. Um, not all parents agree. Not all parents are still married. Uh, not all parents are still in the same state. So there is a batting order, a chain of command. So uh, that is the healthcare power of attorney. The difference with a HIPAA is you could have 10 people on there and they could all say, hey, I want to have a voice in this process. I you know, I want to be informed. I want to be able to speak with the doctor. They they have a voice, but they don't have the vote. They don't have the decision making authority. So, they're they're different documents, and okay. they have different purposes. Okay. It, if you are if you do your documents in Rhode Island, and your child goes to school in Pennsylvania, is that document going to cover? them wherever they go and you? It should. Most states uh, have in their um, in their statute covering healthcare powers of attorney that they will recognize uh, a power of attorney from another state. Also, we have our full faith and credit clause of uh, our wonderful constitution. As a practical point, most institutions want to have that. They want it to work. So in my experience, they will err on the side of you know, this looks like this was duly, you know, executed in Rhode Island. And one of the sort of the value added when you come and see us to get this uh, document prepared is on the healthcare power of attorney, I add a sheet that certifies that I'm licensed to practice law in Rhode Island. This comports with the execution requirements of our state. And this is effective for the state of Rhode Island. And I'm a real lawyer, and here's my bar number. Okay. And I think that that helps. Although, you know, my experience definitely institutions want to have that that power of attorney because it, it really helps them. Okay. And are there any times when I've heard certain physicians' offices will hand out their own HIPAA release form? So is that a possibility that, say, you have a primary care and cardiac medical practitioner, you're going to both offices, they would send you different releases, and you also have prepared a HIPAA release with an attorney. Is one going to trump the other? Do they all end up blending? People are more comfortable with their own forms. So mm -hmm. if your doctor gives you a HIPAA authorization, it's great. 
go ahead and execute it. It also gets the conversation going. Most people don't have these. So okay. most people don't have a will. They don't have powers of attorney. So we're going to change that all with this podcast. Um, <laughs> get the word out there. People really, they do need to have it, but more is better. And, you know, if you're if your child is going to college or maybe going to the military uh, or maybe even going to a company, um, if they, it's always worth asking, you know, what kind of forms do you have here? Is there some type of a, you know, do you have a HIPAA authorization? And as part of the, we'll just use college as the example, if your child is going to a, a university, what's the deal? Do they have their own health service? Is there a campus a health service? Or are they going to some, like all these great small colleges in Boston? Uh, they have a lot of great hospitals all around them, a lot of great healthcare all around them. They probably don't have their own campus health service. So as part of your due diligence, you might want to say, geez, if something, you know, if your child goes to MassArt or Bentley or Wentworth in Boston, asking the dean or somebody like, where do people go for, where do you go to the emergency room and how's that handled and really being proactive about getting, being able to access the information. And also a document that we don't prepare, but if your child is going to go to college, um, their, their educational information is protected because they're an adult. If they're 18, the Federal, federal Educational Rights Protection Act covers them. We call it FERPA. So <laughs> if, you, if, you get, if you do go to the school and you are interested in, say, seeing your students' grades, mm -hmm. you should execute the FERPA release, and that will say, you know, Boston University, FERPA, or Harvard, or Bentley, or whatever the school is. Um, but that will be their form. But I would encourage every parent... Mm -hmm. to have that executed because there are t there's plenty of parents who will pay for four or five or six years <laughs> of tuition and they'll never see the grades. Right. And does the this child also need to sign that form? The, the child needs to sign it okay. to, to waive because it's their right that they're waiving. It's like the HIPAA. Yeah. They're, they're waiving their right to, uh, to the protection. Okay. So they're allowing, they're going to say, okay, I'm going to let my mom and dad or whoever see uh, see these these fabulous uh, grades. <laughs> and you don't provide counseling on the process of getting that resistant <laughs> child to sign the release? <laughs> well, I've, you know, in my own personal experience and professional experience, uh, when you're dropping your child off for their first year <laughs> mm -hmm. of college, they're very flexible. Oh. They're very open and your, you know, your wallet is open and you're, you know, buying the fan and the rug for their room. And you said, well, hey, you know, while we're doing all this, how about you sign this? Okay, um, so sign, do it right off the bat. Absolutely. Okay. But again, it's not a, um, it's not a big deal. It's just a bit of a blind spot. You know, maybe mm -hmm. you've paid for a year of tuition, and you're like, I wonder, <laughs> I wonder how the grades are going, or you know, because not everybody's going to have the the conversation. Or you ask your student, you know, how's how's it going? Great. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> you know, especially I have three sons, and so you know everything's good. Yeah, you know, where's the dinner? So, <laughs> can you explain um, if your 18 year old goes to the ER and you're their emergency contact, 
but without a HIPAA release or the healthcare proxy, wh- what does the emergency contact mean? Does it have any purpose? What, what does that entitle you to? Well, that's a good question. And I think a lot of times it'll depend on the emergency room. There was, uh, you know, an incident in Rhode Island where a prominent family's son was admitted multiple times uh, to the ER for a heroin overdose. And eventually, and sadly, you know, he died from, from a heroin overdose. And they were very public about this system failed us. This system should have told us. We were the emergency contacts. And, you know, frankly, maybe they should have, except they're stuck with HIPAA. And they, this adult who will, would, was always the child of these parents, and these, they're always our children, mm-hmm. uh, but they're adults. So they're stuck with weighing their rights under uh, their protected health information under HIPAA. And probably what happened uh, because of the, the Narcan or the, the drugs that are administered is pretty much it takes effect right away. The overdose is stopped, and people are are with it, mm-hmm. and they say, "Gee, you know, this was very serious. Do you want us to?" And I wasn't there. I just imagine that you know they say, "Do you want us to contact your parents?" Oh no, no, don't worry about it, because you know he, you know, didn't want them to know. Okay. And uh, what we do see is that people, you know, you get an explanation of benefits for your insurance. The one of the good things of the, depending on your leanings, Obamacare or the Affordable <laughs> Care Act. Uh, either way, uh, you know, you can have a child up to the age of 26 covered on your insurance. So uh, that gets, gets a good start for them. But, you know, you get a statement every month, um, explanation of benefits, who's been, who's seen whom, and you might get something that says, visit to the emergency room. Huh, I didn't hear about that. Or Planned Parenthood or... Some something comes up on there, and like my children never spoke to me about this. Mm-hmm. So it's it's ideally you have this conversation, like, "Hey, uh, what happened at the ER?" And and if you get, "Oh, there's nothing, there's no big deal," then maybe you want to think about, you know, using that HIPAA authorization, uh, which is obviously not the best. The best course is to have a nice, transparent, open, right, communication. However, um, you know, if you really needed to because, you know, sometimes it might be something that people don't want to talk about. It could be a sexually transmitted disease or mm-hmm. uh, suicide or, or something that people are embarrassed about or they're just not comfortable talking to their parents about. Um, but there's definitely a tension there because it's their health information and they're adults. Right, right. But they're on their parents' insurance. And the parents are paying. yeah. Yeah. So, but it's it's just like well, for a lot of people, it's just like the college or kids who are just getting started. They move to you know California or something like that. The parents are paying the rent and getting them started. But uh, legally, mm-hmm. um, it's the it's the child's rights. It's their information. Okay, so if you're an emergency contact on something, it's good to know that you'll only be contacted if you absolutely need to be or the patient authorizes it. Yeah, I think each institution may be different. Mm -hmm. And, you know, what you, just because you go to the emergency room, maybe they don't think of that as necessarily an emergency that, especially if the person is 
coherent enough to say, hey, do you want us to, to call your emergency contact? You, you really got a problem here. Oh, no, I'm fine. Yeah. So, and it's also similar to, why didn't you call me? I'm their healthcare power of attorney. Well, because in our estimation, they were still perfectly competent to make healthcare decisions, informed healthcare decisions for themselves. Mm-hmm. Okay. I've done a little digging around and I saw a lot of online HIPAA releases promising that you can do the same thing just all by yourself. I'm assuming you might have an opinion on that about the there might be pitfalls around that or what do you recommend? Should people just go on and do their own online? No, everyone should come and see me <laughs> and hire hire us. I mean, like you said before, if you go to your doctor, your cardiologist or your you know, general practitioner, and they have a their own HIPAA form that that says, you know, this is the this is Dr. Diana's practice, and here's our form. I think that's great, and probably more people should do that. Like all online forms, uh, some of them may be great, and some states actually have. I think um, Rhode Island has a uh, healthcare power of attorney form that's on the Department of Health website, maybe the Attorney General's website. I think we do add value, though, explaining what the documents do. Mm -hmm. And also, like I said before, having the certification that says, hey, I am actually a lawyer and I did actually prepare this uh, for these folks. I think, you know, one of the issues is if someone doesn't accept the, the form, then we can call. Right. And say, hey, what's the problem? And they might say, well, this isn't notarized. Well, it doesn't have to be notarized. And here's the, this is what it says in the Code of Federal Regulations. Mm-hmm. So how about that? Uh, but like any online estate planning, it may work for some people, but you know, obviously it's not something I would recommend for everybody. Okay, okay. Um, what about a durable power of attorney? So the, the durable power of attorney is different like the HIPAA uh, release, it's effective when you sign it, if, if you set it up that way. Mm-hmm. And what it allows people to do is make financial and other decisions, sign tax returns, deal with insurance companies, and basically do buy and sell a house, do all the things that that person could do if they weren't there. There is a form that's called a springing power of attorney that is only effective when the per, sort of like the healthcare power of attorney, it's not effective until the person's not competent. I'm not a fan of those. And um, <laughs> the state of Florida, which has a lot of uh, elder folks and has a very advanced state planning bar and a very active financial lobby, uh, has actually banned that type of power of attorney. And those are problematic because, say, we represented a bank. And the bank said, oh, how, uh, this person came in. How do we know they're not competent? Well, we have a letter from the doctor. Well, how do we know that letter is legitimate? So uh, Florida has banned those. I don't know if other states have. I don't think those are very helpful. Okay. I think they're counterproductive. But So the, the financial power of attorney, um, if you had it in order, things you got to have, I would say you really need that HIPAA, you need that healthcare power of attorney, then a financial or durable power of attorney so your child, if they ran into a problem with insurance or a landlord, that mm-hmm. has been something that we've come across a couple of times because 
some landlords don't always treat college students uh, maybe with the respect that they should. And if a parent, you know, tries to weigh in, the landlord says, butt out, you're not on the lease, you're not involved in this. Oh. So then the parent can say, well, actually, I'm the power of attorney, and I fully authorized me to do this. And this isn't a legal item. It's more of a political or emotional. When the landlord hears power of attorney, my attorney prepared this, they hear attorney a few times, they may dial back a little bit. Sure, sure. Uh, so, but but the financial or durable power of attorney, again, is a pretty straightforward document and is also critical because although it may not be as, uh, uh, you know, health, that have that health impact like the National Guardsmen, mm -hmm. you know, again, if, if your child had a real serious financial situation, you would have to get a guardianship. So... Basically, these these documents prevent having to open up a public court proceeding, and all guardianships are actually advertised in the newspaper. It's oh. sort of an old-timey. We were talking earlier about uh, newspapers uh, <laughs> kind of fading out a little old-timey, but still, guardianships are very public. Okay. Um, it's, there's a public hearing, and it's a very uh, involved process. It involves the doctors. It'll involve an independent attorney uh, in Rhode Island to be the guardian ad litem to make sure the person's not being taken advantage of. So it's extremely, there's a huge return on your investment for these documents. And, and again, this is worst case scenario and it's very, thank goodness I haven't often invoked, but when they do need to be invoked, it's, it's a tremendous value to have these in place. Okay, okay. When we are talking about documents in this realm, is there any need for a young adult to have a will? Mostly no. Mm -hmm. um, if you don't have a will, uh, and but all family situations are different, but sure. you know, just in broad strokes, if you don't have a will, every state has uh, intestacy laws. And most states say, if you die without a will and you don't have children, then your assets will go to your parents. If you have, if you have children or spouse, then those would be divided up differently. For a lot of our non-married or younger adult children, uh, they probably don't. But not speaking in broad strokes, maybe they had a child already. Mm -hmm. You know, maybe they had a child in high school or uh, they have some other complication, then maybe they do need a will because they want to name the guardian for the child. Maybe they don't have a lot of assets, but then if something happened to them, they want to have a guardian for their child and maybe have a trust in their will for the child. Um, for our clients who maybe have very generous grandparents mm -hmm. um, and who are given not insignificant amounts of money or other assets or maybe some interest in like a, the family house on the Cape or the vineyard or something like that, we have drawn trust. So as part of this process, we'll also we'll do the HIPAA authorization, the healthcare power of attorney, um, the durable power of attorney will also do a will and a trust for them. And typically, guess, guess who the trustees of the trust are? <laughs> the parents. How did you know that? <laughs> Just a guess. <laughs> uh, so typically, um, and, and also when uh, we've met with people who say, you know, my father and my mother is, you know, they're doing their estate planning. They want to do give, a, give away some money as part of their estate planning. They're a lot more comfortable when it's made out to 
Diana, trustee of the trust for the benefit of grandchild, mm -hmm. instead of some other arrangement where maybe the child can grab it when they're 18 or 21, uh, if it's under the uh, a Gift to Minors Act. So every family's different, but if we're doing sort of by importance, mm -hmm. the will is probably of less importance, although it depends on the situation. Okay. Okay. And just for a, a ballpark idea of the logistics of executing these documents, um, if parents were to contact you to do the documents, I'm assuming both parents <clears throat> need to be there. Does the child need to be there? Or can the documents be brought home and signed by them? Do they get notarized? Um, what's the actual process like? So when we represent a new client, we usually have an engagement letter with this new client who's an adult and is competent to contract. So oh, the parents don't always like this, but we have an engagement letter with the adult child, their mm -hmm. child. And typically we say, this is what you're engaging us to do. These are the documents we're going to prepare. And it's going to be, say, $300. Your parents have graciously agreed to pay the fee. So what you're agreeing to is the representation. And like so many things, the parents are going to pay for it, <laughs> like the college or the move to California or the car or whatever. So um, when we get the engagement letter, then we have a new client who's 18. Mm -hmm. And the parents are interested in coming. And sometimes the parents are also our clients. So and typically both parents want to come. Mm -hmm. They don't want to miss anything. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so uh, what I usually do is I will maybe have the parents leave the room or say to the, to the young client, hey, we represent your, your parents, and we're doing some estate planning, doing these documents. Right now, we don't see any problem. There's no conflict. But if there is a conflict, your parents want to do something you don't want to do, then we're going to let you know, and somebody's going to have to step aside. And sometimes we have, you know, I have the conversation, the parents will leave the room and I'll say, hey, I represent you. We represent you. You are our client and we're going to do what's in your best interest. But look, your parents are here with you. But all these documents that we're going to prepare, you can revoke them and you can change them. Um, if you don't want your parents to be involved anymore, you get married, then maybe you should definitely revoke these and you put on your spouse as, as a person or not. But they need to know that they are the client. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times the parents don't like when we tell them that they can change the documents or revoke the documents. Sure. But that's the deal. You know, they, they're the client, they're the adult. Haven't had that happen yet, fortunately, <laughs> knocking on wood. But, um, and, and for those cases, and it's not a lot, but for the people who have set up the trusts, that's been a very good uh, situation because it also gets the young adult, the child, thinking about planning, thinking about their future. And, you know, and at some point, parents are, are not going to be appropriate as, as the trustees anymore. Sure. Yeah. But that's the, uh, it's an interesting meeting. <laughs> I bet. It's an interesting meeting. And a lot of parents are not happy yeah. when we, when we 
lay out all their their rights, their children's rights and options. <laughs> well, because it makes it sound a little bit like when you talk about having these documents in place, it it sounds a little bit like, oh, the parents are all set. They're still 100% the parent. <laughs> right. And you come to realize, oh, no, they are still the adult. And That's right. They're not really in control. It's, it's up to the client. It's up mm-hmm. to that adult. Yeah. Uh, so... It's, <laughs> but it's as good as it's going to get without having to go through um, a guardianship proceeding, mm-hmm. which is uh, cumbersome, expensive, and and takes some time. Yeah, and public. And public. Yeah. Okay. Do you have any advice for parents who do have children that are turning eighteen? Do they need to consider changing any of their forms? as that happens uh, in terms of their own trust and estate planning. Definitely. I think as part of the process, people who haven't maybe set up a trust or a a trust in their will start thinking as part of this conversation about, hey, they have these rights. Hey, they're adults. Hey, they can contract. They say, oh, hey, I don't want them to have, if something happens to me, I definitely don't want them to have $300,000 from my life insurance or And it doesn't happen very often, but one of the things about coming to see me is we're not planning for everything working out. Mm-hmm. You know, we're kind of deal in some heavy worst case scenario, death and disability, divorce, decay, all the bad D's. Mm-hmm. Um, so as part of the process, and whenever I get a chance to meet with people and we talk about estate planning, it's like, how are you, you know, you comfortable with everything you've got set up right now? I don't think I've come across really. It's very rare to come across a client who says, I'm fine with when this child turns 18, they're off the races, you know. It's cigars and casinos every night. Right. It's the American <laughs> way, really. Right. So uh, it's, it's uh, most people really want to revisit that. And it's a great time to do it. Um, mm-hmm. And also, this whole, like I mentioned before, this estate planning process, uh, people, get married, people have children, people become disabled, people die. It, it's a, it's an evolving process. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, the, the young adult, you know, also needs to look at this, you know, maybe when they're starting to, maybe they've graduated or they think about getting married, you know, updating what they have, or they have a great job and they do actually have some assets. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it is an opportunity for people to, to revisit things it's also an opportunity for the parent to talk to the grandparents. Uh, I've always discouraged uh, grandparents from giving money to their grandchildren who are minors, mm-hmm. definitely because sometimes that requires a guardianship, and that's a ridiculous amount of effort, sometimes for you know twenty or $30,000. It's not uh, an efficient way to execute an estate plan. But it's also an opportunity to talk to the parents and say, hey, are you planning on doing anything? Just, you know, you can always tell me it's none of my business, but these are our values. And we don't want our kids to get a a slug of money when they're 16 Mm -hmm. (laughs) or 18 or, you know, and it's it's a chance to talk to and also to that bigger conversation of, hey, mom and dad, do you have powers of attorney? Do you have a trust? Uh, Am I part of the program? I just interested mm-hmm. standing yeah. by. Mm-hmm. Like for my mom, if she says, Hey, I want you to be part of this, I want you to be power of attorney or trustee or whatever, it's like, that's great. 
let me see the documents. Let's yeah. see, you know, what do you have? So um, that's not always an easy conversation, but for people who it's not an easy conversation, it's an opportunity to say, hey, we went to the lawyer. We got this stuff for our, our kid. He's 18. You're 80. <laughs> what do you got? Yeah. Um, or I don't need to know the who's. I just do you have this set up? Are you going to put us through the ring? Are you going to put us through the whole probate guardianship or, or whatever it is? So it's, it is, it's, a, it's a real milestone, mm-hmm. big milestone. So it's yeah. an opportunity. Okay. For people to understand and maybe not be discouraged, what would it look like in terms of cost and time to come in with their child or the child to come in on their own um, and and get those documents produced? I'm still waiting for that to happen <laughs> for the child to come in by themselves. Depends on. how determined they are to be split <laughs> from their parents. Exactly. <laughs> to come in unescorted, maybe it will happen sometime. <laughs> uh, it's amazing. Parents are very attentive to this process. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> in terms of fees, we usually charge you know, around three hundred dollars for for something like this, um, just to do to do the documents, and it, that also includes talking, answering questions about it, meeting with the client, the young adult <laughs> child, the YAC, yeah, the YAC, <laughs> and uh, and the parents. But the value, you know, as opposed to you know getting something online, there is I think a value to a full explanation of it, mm-hmm. and also you know we have. You know, we'll notarize the documents, we'll make copies, we'll retain copies. So it, it has happened that people have had, not so much for our young clients, but for our older clients, a child will say, oh God, I'm at Rhode Island Hospital. Can you email or fax my, you know, the healthcare power of attorney? Mm-hmm. So that's also a value added. Or if you present a HIPAA authorization or you present a healthcare power of attorney or you present a durable power of attorney in a bank or a hospital the doctor, eh, this doesn't look right. We're not going to take it. Mm-hmm. So hold on just a second. I want you to talk to somebody. Yeah. And then we'll talk to them about their concerns. And, and usually we get it squared away in a, in a call or a fax. Okay. And it sounds like it's not unlikely to get a call questioning a form. That, that's not something that wouldn't happen. It, it can happen fairly. Yeah. Uh, the, the, especially with the durable power of attorney, the financial power of attorney, banks are very resistant, frequently resistant to those because they're a common tool of financial abuse. Mm-hmm. And maybe it's not a bad thing <laughs> that yeah. they that they say, yeah, we're not so sure about this. This is uh, this wasn't executed in the last six months or this doesn't have two signatures or whatever, that they can get a little resistance. But sometimes with the the medical uh, documents Although that's less less common. It's more common with the durable power of attorney, the financials. Okay. Parrish, is there any other advice or documentation that you think your child would need before heading off to college? I, th- I think it's important to have a discussion with them, sort of a drug, sex, and rock and roll discussion. Um, one of the biggest changes uh, probably over the last uh, 10 or 20 years is Title IX enforcement, mm-hmm. which uh, prohibits sexual discrimination. And so that includes a lot more than uh, they're spending too much on their football team. So, and there's been a lot in the press about the schools and investigations into sexual harassment and sexual assault. Mm-hmm. So I think every student, they need to have the discussion with their parents 
I think the statistics are something like one in four, one in five female students will encounter some type of sexual harassment. And that includes verbal or mm -hmm. uh, threatened, you know, unwanted touching or actual touching and all the way to, you know, to rape. Mm -hmm. And uh, when my son, we dropped him off at his school, we were split into the parents, we got the parent talk from the dean, and the dean talked about sexual consent for about 10 or 15 minutes. And I think some parents were like, why are we hearing about this? And he said, look, this is a real problem on yeah. campuses, and everybody needs to know about it, and we hope you talk to your students about this. Because tonight, on their dorm floor, they're going to hear about this for over an hour. What mm -hmm. is informed consent? And it just leads to a larger discussion of respect Mm -hmm. and also being careful. So um, as people go talk to their students, male and female, about this is a very real issue and the climate is pretty charged and these investigations are very serious. And something that, you know, some behavior is can get you, you know, expelled from, from the school or put in a very serious disciplinary situation. Also having discussions with people, very basic conversations about, you got to watch it, you know, there's going to be drinking, there's, there's going to be drugs around. And if you don't want to be part of that, you got to be very careful. Mm -hmm. um, so, so that is a, a very serious consideration and something that's very different from when I was in school. Mm -hmm. Title IX was just not enforced. So, People need to be aware of that mm -hmm. and sort of in a, in a larger scope, the whole, uh, as you go to college, you're going to be responsible for your behavior and maybe to get a feel for what's the campus security, or I think they're called now, what's the campus safety? <laughs> what's the operation? Do they automatically call the police? Do they have their own try to handle things in-house? Uh, what's the deal with the campus? Is it a dry campus? or they uh, have more of an open approach. Mm -hmm. But those are things that, that students need to be aware of. I think it's sort of like estate planning in that a lot of times you're dropping your child off and you're focused on the laundry and the detergent and the sheets and the fan mm -hmm. and getting signed up for classes. But you have to know your child and it's worthwhile saying, you know, when trouble is brewing, are you going to be someone who's in trouble? Or are you going to be someone who's helping? Mm -hmm. And... You know, I know even some some people whose children have had problems with the police in high school, they go ahead and get the tenor of the and the tone of the campus, and they may also actually go ahead and seek out some potential attorneys that they can talk to. Mm -hmm. And again, this is real, this is tough, worst-case scenario stuff, but a couple of parents have really benefited from that. Um their their children have had some troubles in high school, mm -hmm. and uh, they they've done their due diligence, and it was it was very helpful. Okay, and, and I would think also going along with that, being a social media person, be careful what you do on social media, what you put out there, what you take pictures of, types of things that you say, because that follows you forever. I wonder if our listeners got the same chill that I did <laughs> when you talked about the pictures and social media. So, absolutely. There's eyes on everybody, mm -hmm. so there's ups and downs to that. Yeah, yeah. 
Well, Parrish, thank you so much for joining us today. As I mentioned, Parrish has been with us before for a couple of podcasts. If you are interested in those, please go to our website at www.bglaw.com and you can find those as well as others. And thank you to our listeners. The content provided in this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to constitute legal advice or to form an attorney-client relationship. If you would like to seek legal advice from a Barton Gilman attorney, please visit us at www.bglaw.com or call 888-273-9903 for more information. Barton Gilman is a leading civil litigation law firm with offices in Boston, Providence, and New York. Our attorneys represent a variety of clients in a wide range of matters, and our trial attorneys appear regularly in the federal and state courts of Massachusetts, Rhode Island, Connecticut, and New York, as well as before various administrative agencies. Barton Gilman and its attorneys have received numerous awards and accolades, including 2017 Champions for Justice, 2015 Outstanding Philanthropic Business, Best Lawyers, Best Law Firms, Best Places to Work Rhode Island, and Super Lawyers, to name just a few. For more information about Barton Gilman, please visit us at www.bglaw.com or call 888-273-9903.